In this video, I want to uh, continue and conclude my discussion of the woman with the issue of blood and the raising of Jairus' daughter that I began in the last video by discussing the miraculous interpretation of these events, which I consider to be an historical question, as I said in that video, not a question of faith uh, in some separate way from history. So let's suppose that we've established that these external events happened as the disciples witness them and as they're told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What's the best explanation of those? You can see a similarity here to the argument for the resurrection. You know, if they really had these appearance experiences and this is really what they attested, what is the best explanation? In the case of healing miracles and uh, of resurrections from the dead, when the dead person is died only recently, we can sometimes attempt non-miraculous explanations. So I'd like to see what we can do with that here. What could a skeptic attempt to say? Now, it's completely legitimate in an overall historical evaluation to bring in the other things that you know about this person. Uh, and if we know separately that we have good evidence that Jesus is God, for example, from the argument for the resurrection uh, and other miracle stories that have their own credibility, then that's going to change our ultimate conclusion about whether he could have been, for example, mistaken about whether he'd healed somebody, okay, or uh, whether uh, it could have really happened in some non-miraculous way, but he's giving the impression that it's a miracle. <coughs> so that's legitimate to bring in. But in this video, I'm going to try to talk about the evidence that we have that these miracles happened from these accounts. What kind of independent evidence uh, do these accounts give us of a genuinely miraculous event? So let's start with the woman with the issue of blood. I would say in that case, the chief competitor to the miracle explanation is the, the idea that she was just mistaken, that she had been healed, and that she, had, she could have had a relapse later on, or even have discovered that uh, the, the hemorrhage had not truly stopped. It's obviously a very private event, and we don't have any follow-up. The accounts in their very nature do not contain further conversations with her or checking things out later on. Uh, yes, you know, it really stopped and so forth. So that would be the chief competitor. Um, again, if you believe that Jesus is God or even a prophet, and he obviously believes he's healed her, um, then you're going to be like, well, you know, he didn't mess around. He, he would have known whether he healed her or not. But just considering this account independently, we don't have what we would look for in like a modern miracle account. We would uh, talk to the doctors. We'd have the doctor's reports and that kind of thing and follow up, you know, a year later, she was still free of her symptoms and so forth. And we just don't have that here. There is one thing, though, in the account that I think is interesting, which is Jesus' claim that uh, someone touched him for healing in the crowd. And as the account goes, he turns around and he says, who touched me? And his disciples, you know, they could be skeptical, too. They're not just credulous. They say, Lord, the whole, the whole crowd is pushing you and crowding around you. What do you mean, who touched me? They're like, you know, this is what philosophers call a selection effect. You know, you're just picking out uh, this idea that someone touched you when actually lots of people are touching you. 
But Jesus says, no, I felt power go out of me. Someone touched me for healing. And he looks around, you know, and he's, he's this very compelling person. We're to picture Jesus, I think, as a very compelling personality. And he's looking around. And only one person steps forward, and it's this woman. And she's trembling, it says, and, and has to tell her embarrassing story. Now, that would be a pretty striking coincidence if you were there. Uh, that, that even though everybody's kind of jostling Jesus, he... He says, it's almost like he has ESP, you know, that someone's touched him for healing. And then, sure enough, this one woman comes forward and says this, and nobody else does. Nobody else admits it. Um, so I think that's that's evidence of a real healing. Now, you know, you can say it's a coincidence, but it's evidence right in the account that something really happened. And I think if you'd been there, you would have been struck by what a, what a coincidence that is. He's saying this first just out of the blue, and then her confirming that, in fact, she did touch him for healing. Now, moving on to the account of the death of Jairus' daughter, I think the strongest naturalistic competitor there would be that a skeptic might try to say that she was not really dead. And uh, if I may quote the immortal words of Miracle Max in The Princess Bride, mostly dead is partly alive. We have cases, natural cases of children who've drowned or people who have not had a heartbeat or breathing for a half an hour or something and then they come back. And we don't always conclude that that's a miracle, though we may suspect it in certain cases. Uh, sometimes the parents will say it was a miracle. But uh, the idea that she wasn't really dead because it had been too short of a time, I think, would be the chief competitor here. Um, but even there, I think we should consider the fact that Jesus does not do artificial respiration on the girl, according to the account. He just takes her by the hand. They would have at least had the ability to tell that she was not breathing. All you have to do is hold something shiny, you know, in front of the person's mouth and it doesn't, you know, mist up or it doesn't show any breath or put your hand, you know, you can feel that the person isn't breathing. Uh, I'm sure they would have known how to feel for a heartbeat or a pulse. So when they declare she's dead, that's probably what they've been looking for, a heartbeat or pulse and breathing. There she is. She's at least profoundly unconscious, not breathing, no pulse. Jesus comes in, and at the very moment that he just very simply takes her hand and says, made arise, she wakes up, gets up, and she's even able to walk. Again, this is when we take the observable facts to be as they're recounted, as I argued in the previous video. That's going to be pretty striking. Um, that's not everybody working over the, the drowned person for a half an hour and then he wakes up or something like that. That's not the paramedics, uh, first responders, getting the person to come back. That's just Jesus coming in. And stories that we have of uh, people suddenly becoming conscious, usually it's, um, it's, it's not, you know, the minute somebody touches them. Or if somebody does touch them, maybe they'll move. You know, the person will say, hey, move your, move your hand if you can or move your foot if you can. It's not like you come in, you just take the person by the hand, and suddenly they're talking. This would be a very striking, again, very striking coincidence and would undeniably look like a miracle. Even if you think that there may have still been some electrical brain activity taking place in the child's uh, brain at this time, she was at least apparently dead, dead to appearances. And then Jesus just takes her by the hand and she wakes up and is able to walk. So I would say with those external uh, circumstances confirmed, that really does appear to be a miracle. And, and natural explanations are going to be less probable for that, 
even when we don't bring in our other knowledge of Jesus. I think these accounts, which are among, I would say, the weaker evidences for miracles in the Gospels, are a kind of a good illustration case of how we evaluate this historically uh, without bringing in faith considerations. I think that a historian can conclude as a historian that a miracle has taken place. I certainly think that's true in the case of the uh, resurrection. It all just depends upon the strength of the case. Uh, and you take all evidence into account and you look at the case. I don't think that we should say, well, I'm going to put my Christian hat on now, now I'm going to take my Christian hat off and I'm going to uh, conclude something as a historian and apply some kind of methodological naturalism to conclusions drawn as historians. That's a big topic in itself. But I'd like to illustrate how we have this kind of integrated epistemology and theory of knowledge in our historical evaluations of miracles, and that's part of what I'm trying to do in this series. Thanks for watching.